You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn East. At the very beginning of the Bible, we see God's good vision for the world, creation in harmony with humanity, and humanity in harmony with God. Join us for our series, Sacred, Genesis 1 and 2. Today's scripture comes from Genesis 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. Thanks, Lindsay. Well, good morning. Peace be with you. So good to see you. If you're visiting with us, as Lindsay said, my name is Kevin, and I have the privilege of serving as the lead pastor here at Sojourn East. And I just want to say thanks for joining us. We know you could be anywhere this morning, and we're glad that you've joined us. Before we jump into the sermon, we always like to pray to ask God to open our eyes and our ears and our hearts that we might be able to receive the truth. So if you're, you're willing, please join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for the gift of gathering this morning. Lord, I'm just so, this morning I've been so um, impressed by your goodness. And I know that can be so hard for us to believe at times. Our lives are filled with a lot. There's good in our life. There's also a lot of hard things in our life. And I pray this morning as we open your word that we might, our, our imaginations might be captured by how good you are and how good to us you are. I pray for people here who are really struggling physically, spiritually, who barely made it in this morning. I pray, Lord, that that this morning's sermon and really just your word, as we open it up and look at it, that would be like a tall glass of water to someone who's very, very thirsty. Pray for people whose hearts have grown cold, that it would bring warmth, encouragement. For people who are stuck in sin, they might experience freedom and really all of us, Lord, I pray that we would leave here with a greater understanding of who you are, what you're up to in the world, what your desire is for us, and why we have reason to hope no matter what our life circumstances might bring. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last week, Pastor Jonathan kicked off a nine-week series for us that we've entitled Sacred. And what we're doing in the series is we're just exploring Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapters 1 and 2, the creation accounts in Scripture. And before we get into this morning's text, I wanted to share a little bit of the heart behind this series. I've been pastoring for about 15 years, and one of the common pitfalls I've observed in the church is that many Christians, they functionally live as if Genesis 3 is the beginning of the story. And what I mean by that is the Christian faith, in many of our minds, it kind of starts with sin, like we sinned and rebelled against God, and then God in his grace, he sent his son to die for our sins, to show us forgiveness, and then he, he's given us hope of eternal life. And of course, all of those things are true, and they're essential, but they're not the whole story. And if that's how we understand the story, there's actually some, some really wicked side effects that can come from that, because the Christian story doesn't begin with sin. It begins with God, God who in love created all things and created all things very good. And so even though sin is 
left its mark on everything and every one of us, it hasn't erased the original goodness. You could think of it like a, a beautiful painting. It might, you know, be trashed or vandalized by vandals, but the beauty is still there underneath a lot of the ugliness that we see. Wendell Berry, a poet who lives not too far from here and writer, in one of his poems, he said, there are no unsacred places. There are only sacred and desecrated places. And that's a pretty profound thought if you sit with it. And I think a lot of times in the church, we kind of, if we have that, the story begins in Genesis 3, then we think like spiritual things are good, God's good, prayer's good, church is good, material things like food and clothing and shelter and the earth, those things are bad. And that's actually not biblical at all. Really bad things come and how we understand God and ourselves, if that's how we understand the story. And I think you'll see that as we work through the text this morning. And so our goal for this series is, one, I want you to be able to enjoy your life a little bit more and enjoy the God who's given you that life. But I, I want us to think more deeply and more biblically about the world, about ourselves. I want to think more deeply and biblically about things like material stuff about the environment, about this world, about our bodies, human dignity, sexuality. And so last week, Pastor Jonathan did an amazing job preaching on the doctrine of creation. Uh, and this week, what we're actually going to do is go backwards to the time before creation. We're going we're gonna to ask three questions, explore three questions. Number one, what was God doing before he created the world? Number two, why did God create the world? And then number three, how do the answers to those two questions speak to and shape our lives today? What difference do they make? Starting with the first question, what was God doing before he created the world? Genesis 1 begins, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the beginning spoken of there, we need to be really clear about this. It's not the beginning of God. God is eternal. He has no beginning. The beginning spoken of there is the beginning of our world, our universe, our story and human history. But God existed long before he created. And so what was he doing before he created the world? What was he up to in eternity past? And this is a deep question. And I know for some here, it might be tempting to kind of write this off as some sort of theological or philosophical riddle akin to asking how many angels can dance on a, a, a pinhead. You know, one old theologian, someone asked him, what was God doing before he created time? Uh, and the theologian responded, creating hell for people who ask such questions. <laughs> and I think you hear that question, and depending on your wiring, you might think like, what? That's so far out there. But listen, all theology is practical, and all of our practice is theological. And what was God doing before time began? That question, it's not some just theological conundrum that has no bearing on our lives. It's intensely practical because it speaks to the heart of who God is, of what God is like, what his posture is towards the world, what his passions are. When I say all theology is practical, all of us have an image of God in our mind. When you think about God, what do you think about? What words pop into your mind? Sovereign, holy, 
mighty, powerful, Lord, judge, ruler, creator. When we think about God, we think of those things, and those things are all true and they're good. God did speak creation into being. He does sovereignly rule over it all by the word of his power. While that's true, God existed before he created the world. And so that means being creator and ruler of the world can't be at the very bottom of his identity because he existed before that. It's like some of you, some of you are teachers. And if someone asks you, like, what do you do? And to, to, to define yourself, who are you? And you would say, well, I'm also, I'm a teacher. And that's a part of your identity, and it's an essential part of your identity. But it's not who you are at the bottom because you existed before you were ever a teacher or a mechanic or a business person or a banker. In the same way, if we only think of God in terms of creator and ruler of the world, we're never going to get to the essence of who he is, even though those things are true and they're part of who he is. So we ask, what was he doing before he created the world? Then we start to get to the bottom of who is this God that we worship? And in Genesis 1, we get some glimpses that the rest of the Bible kind of turn the lights on and help us see. Genesis 1's like through a mirror dimly, but we see it in these first three verses. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2, we're told that there was darkness over the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And then verse 3, we're told that God said, let there be light, and there was light. And so even in the first three verses, we have God, we have God's Spirit, and then we have God's word. This is the first glimpse of the Trinity that we're given in the Bible, that God has eternally existed as one God in three persons of Father, Son, who's sometimes referred to as the Word, like in John 1, and the Spirit. Before creation began, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit were living in community with one another. Now, we fast forward to John 17, the night before Jesus' arrest, or the night of his arrest, he prays. It's called the high priestly prayer, and it's one of the deep, deep passages of Scripture. And in John 17, Jesus says this, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Now, that word Glorify, it means to honor, to praise, to magnify, to love. And so Jesus, in this prayer, we're getting to overhear, and he's actually telling us what was happening before he created anything. That in this community of Father, Son, and Spirit, the Father was glorifying, magnifying, loving, and delighting in his Son. Later on in the prayer, Jesus prays. He actually prays for us. He says, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me, again, because you loved me before the creation of the world. Before time began, before God created the galaxies and the stars and the oceans and the mountains, before he was creator at all, our God was a father who loved his son. This is at the very heart of who God is. 
And there's a wonderful little book, Delighting in the Trinity, which I highly recommend. It's accessible. You can read it and understand it. Michael Reeves writes this. He says, since God is before all things a father and not primarily creator or ruler, all his ways are beautifully fatherly. It is not that this God does being father as a day job only to kick back to the evenings as plain old God. It's not that he has a nice blob of fatherly icing on top. He is father all the way down. Thus, all that he does, he does as father. That is who he is. He creates as father and he rules as a father. So question one, what was God doing before time? He was living in a community of love. The Father loved the Son in the Spirit. Okay, so question number two, then why did he create the world? Why is there a world? Let's just sit pause in the Bible. I mean, this is a big question that we should all be asking, regardless of what you believe or don't believe about God. Why, why are we here? What, is this, what does any of this mean? What's at the bottom? What's the pattern? Is this all random? Really? You can go wrong there, but you can also go wrong. You can say, well, I believe in God. Well, why did he create the world? I remember my family didn't grow, go to church often growing up, but I remember when I was really young, we went to church, and this question came up, and we did the little children's deal where the kids come up front. We tried that once here. I failed miserably at it because it's challenging. But the kids were up front kind of asking questions, and someone asked, and and one of the responses, well, maybe it was because God was lonely. Of course, that's not true. He's lived eternally, Father, Son, and Spirit, delighting in one another. The, the Babylonian creation myth, Enuma Elish, says that the god Marduk created humankind so that the gods could have slaves. Well, aren't that's wrong too. Our God did not create out of lack. There wasn't something missing. It wasn't like, you know, if you're in your, your house and you kind of are working to get a room the way you really like it. And you're like, you know what would be great? If we could get like a plant over here and some artwork on the wall. That would really tie the room together. God didn't create the world because he was living and saying, man, I'm really lacking something. It wasn't out of lack that God created. It was out of overflow. He created because he's a father, and that's the kind of God he is. Reeves continues, he says, a father is a person who gives life, who begets children. Now that insight is like a stick of dynamite in all of our thoughts about God. For if before all things God was eternally a father, then this God is inherently an outgoing, life-giving God. He did not give life for the first time when he decided to create from eternity he has been life-giving. Creation, it's an overflow of divine love. Think about, think about a good father. And I know some of you, you maybe don't have a great relationship with your dad, but we all know what a good father is. A good father gives life, a good father protects, provides, and a great father also nurtures and loves and cares for. And what Reeves is saying, what the scriptures teach us, is that creation, the reason God created is because that's just who he is. It's an overflow. It's not out of lack. It's an overflow. 
And that's why at the end of his act of creating, at the end of the six days of creating all the things that Pastor Jonathan walked through last week, he didn't look at it and say, it's okay. Well, this is all going to burn and it's, it's bad stuff, but it's fine. No, he looked at it. He's like, I like it. Very good. Because he's a God who gives. He's generous and pours forth life. He created because that's who he is. And even more, he created because there was such love between the three persons of the Trinity. He created us so that we could partake in that life that eternally existed. And Paul says he's so delighted in his son that he wanted to actually see the beauty of his son multiplied in others. This is an imperfect illustration, but, you know, we have five kids, so my wife and I, we really like kids. Uh, and you have your first one, and it's challenging, and for some people, that's enough. You're like, done, had, this is enough work for me for the rest of my life. But we had our daughter, and she was amazing, and it really was like, I want another one of these. They're incredible. They're, they're wonderful. They're and in a, a sense, that's what happened with God, that he's so delighted in his son. Paul tells us in Romans 8, he says this, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Let's not get tripped up on foreknew and predestined right now, but just saying from the very beginning, when God created the world and created humanity, the reason he did it is so that others would be conformed to the image of a son, that there would be others who were like his son. In order that, Paul says, that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. You grasping what he's saying there? He's so delighted in his son. He's like, you're the firstborn, but I want a bunch of people like you. I want to see you multiplied. I want to see your beauty multiplied. C.S. Lewis, he has this book called The Screwtape Letters. It's a very famous book. Uh, and the, it's kind of a trivia book to get your mind around, but it's really, it's written from the perspective of two demons writing back and forth to each other. And in that book, he compares the devil, who is the pinnacle of self-absorption, and contrasts him with our God who was a father overflowing in love and generosity and joy. And in the book, this is written from the perspective of a demon. He writes, One must face the fact that all the talk about his, that's God's love for men, and his service being perfect freedom, is not, as one would gladly believe, mere propaganda, but an appalling truth. He really does want to fill the universe with a lot of loathsome little replicas of himself. Creatures whose life on its miniature scale will be qualitatively like his own, not because he has absorbed them, but because their wills freely conform to his. We want cattle who can finally become food. He wants servants who can finally become sons. We want to suck in. He wants to give out. We are empty and will be filled. He is full and flows over. The universe and all that it contains is an overflow of God's love. So what was God doing before he created the world? He was a father loving his son in the spirit. Why did he create the world? It was an overflow of that love.
All right, question number three. So what, why does this matter? How does this actually impact our life today when you got to go to work tomorrow and run your kids to take care in school? And... Well, A.W. Tozer, he once said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I think we all have images of God swirling around in our minds. Maybe king, ruler, maybe tyrant, maybe judge. These images, they, they don't just shape how we think about God. They shade how we read the Bible. They affect how we think about ourselves and our purpose. They affect everything. How we engage with the world, how we engage with one another, make sense of our lives. And if our primary understanding of God is that he is the almighty, powerful king, we might still want to worship him, but we'll kind of want to worship him from a distance. And it'll probably stir some anxiety in us, right? Like we'll, we'll want to keep him happy because he's the almighty, powerful judge, but we'll also want to stay off his radar. And some of you grew up in a home like that with your dad. You knew he was strong and powerful and mighty. You respected that. You obeyed and you kept the rules and you did everything you could to avoid him whenever you could. If you heard him walking down the hall, you'd close your doors. You'd stay quiet. Well, I think that's how many, many Christians relate to God. We see him as a powerful Lord, but we don't see him as a loving father. And there's real consequences with that. I think an illustration might help. Most of us have experienced that sinking feeling in our gut, probably when the blue lights flash behind us while we're driving down the road. Anyone? I know we're good Christians, so you all drive the speed limit, but I've been pulled over a few times in my life. I've gotten out of a ticket once. Anyone ever gotten out of a ticket? I was with my friend. Uh, we were visiting. His parents lived in Florida. We were going there for spring break, and he had this sweet new ride that was turbocharged, He's like, do you want to drive the thing? I'd never driven a car that was turbocharged before. And he was explaining, like, if you really want your head to kind of snap back, you got to punch it. And we were driving, it was at night, and we're kind of crossing over two counties. And anyway, I think it was, we were in a 55 or 65, his memories, you know, fades. But so I punched it, and we were hit 65 or 70. And then all of a sudden, we crossed the county line, and the speed limit's 45. And of course, there's cop waiting right there, blue lights on, pulls me over, and I'm thinking, I'm in college, I don't have two nickels to rub together, I'm like, how am I going to pay for this ticket? And the cop comes up, and he asks, why were you going so fast? So I just told him, I'm like, my friend's got this sweet car, and I really wanted to see what it was like when the turbo kicked in, and so got going a little fast, and he ran my stuff, thought I was busted for sure, and then he came back, and he just gave me my license back, and he said, Hey, you're in Walton County now. Just drive like that and respect our laws, but you're free to go. And I don't know if you've ever experienced the like relief and joy of like, we're looking at each other. Are you kidding me? It was amazing. And I was so grateful for that police officer. But you know what? I didn't want to get to know him. I didn't ask him, hey, you want to go to Applebee's after this? catch up. I wanted to move on with my life and stay off his radar, literally and metaphorically. 
In the same way, if God is just the cosmic, all-powerful judge or cop, what kind of salvation can he actually offer us? What does life with him actually look like? I mean, he can forgive us for breaking his rules and laws. He can even treat us as if we'd always kept them. And that might lead to gratitude, but it doesn't lead to love. It doesn't make you want to know him and walk with him. If he's just the almighty, powerful judge, then you want to get on his good side and stay on his good side, but you don't actually want to live with him and experience joy with him. But when you understand that God is not just a ruler, that he's a father, man, that's when the light bulb goes on. When you start to see that God created the universe out of his fatherly love, he sustains the universe out of his fatherly love, and even when we rebelled against him and his design, he didn't wipe us all out, which if he was just a powerful judge, he would have been like Rudy Giuliani in the 90s in New York City, like every infraction, we're punishing you. Bam, 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 but he didn't. He could have wiped us out, but he didn't. Instead, he pursued us in a rebellion. He pursued us with a fierce, unrelenting fatherly love, like a father who'd lost their child to drugs, to alcohol, to any kind of addiction. He didn't wash his hands of us. He sought us out. And in the most staggering display of his love, we're told that he so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shouldn't perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And this is why when Jesus taught us how to pray, he didn't say, pray, almighty king, sovereign judge, holy one. He said, you want to know how to pray? Pray like I do. Father, Father. And I wonder for you, not just what you think about, what comes into your mind, but when you actually look at your life, do you see God as your perfect heavenly Father who's really committed to your good? I wonder how your life would change if you did, what freedom you might experience. I mean, some of you, you live under the pressure to perform all the time. You're people pleasers, you're God pleasers, you're afraid of ever screwing up, and you're just running and running, and you're exhausted, and you're always trying to keep all of the plates spinning. I think at the bottom of that, like what? I wonder what view of God is driving that. That he's really hard to please. And you got to keep it up. I wonder what freedom you, you might experience if you saw him as your father who loved you and created you out of love. Others of you, you know, and I'm, I'm not picking on you here. If anyone who follows Jesus long enough knows that at times, man, you can really get tangled up in sin. And as human beings, we have the capacity to get ourselves into messes we can't get ourselves out of. Amen. And you get into this pattern of sin and you hate it and you want to be free from it and then you can't get free from it and so you feel worse and then you run back to the sin to make you feel better for a little while and then it ends up making you feel worse and you just feel stuck and you feel like you might never be free. 
Well, if God is just the almighty judge in your mind or the almighty, all-powerful creator, when you, when you break his law and his commands and his rules, if that's the only way you see him and you're stuck in that pattern, the last thing you're going to do is go to him because you're terrified of him. You don't even want him to know. But you're not going to be able to get yourself out of the mess. The only way you get yourself out of the mess is with his help. The only way we break free from besetting sins is the grace of God. But if we only see him as the judge, the holy, we're not even going to go to him for help. And that's why some people get stuck in patterns of sin for years and years. But if you see him as your good heavenly father, I mean, the best dads are the ones that you can go to and say, I need help. I blew it. I'm stuck. I don't even know how to get myself out of this mess. That's the kind of father we have. It sets you free, even his commands. You start to see they're not burdensome. They don't weigh us down. He's not trying to keep good things. No, he's just way wiser than we are. And he's like, I know that's shiny and looks fun right now, but I promise you it leads to death. Others of you, I wonder if this truth of the fatherhood of God might actually free you up to find more enjoyment in your life. To enjoy the things that he's given. There, there is something, you know, I came to faith in the 90s and I kind of got grafted in, you know, to use biblical language. And I came in and it, it was weird. I saw so many Christians that would talk about how amazing Jesus was and he came to give us abundant life. But they all seemed sad and angry and mad all the time. Like, they weren't people who lived out of a place of joy and freedom. And I think a lot of that's because, you know, it's like, well, what am I, am I allowed to enjoy things? No, 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 we have to deny ourselves. which, sure, that's part of the Christian life. But part of the Christian life is receiving the good gifts your father gives to you. Living from a place of contentment. Too many Christians, we don't know how to enjoy the things of earth, the things God has given us, because we fear it's unspiritual. But when you know God is your Father, you're able to see the goodness and givenness of all things. And sure, we have an incredible capacity to take even the best of things and sin with them. And so we need to be aware of that. But it's, it's a spiritually naive way to look at the world to think these things are bad and these things are good everything was created good sin by its very nature is parasitic it latches onto a good host and distorts it and the wise christian life is not saying all of these things are bad and these things are good but actually having the discernment to say you know we can sin with just about anything as human beings like we have an incredible capacity and so it's not bad and good. It's all things were created good and all things can be distorted. I wonder for some of you, like what the freedom would be if you actually found contentment in your life, were able to enjoy it. Others of you, maybe you're in a really trying season of life. I will tell you the beautiful truth that God is our Father Man, it has such power to strengthen and sustain us even when we can't see much light on the horizon. But if you only see him as the almighty ruler, judge, 
when hard times hit, man, it can put you in some dark places. And I, you know, at the risk of being too self-referential, like I've been through the ringer the last couple of months regarding my health. I turned 40 the day after it, like went over the hill. And then I feel like I tumbled all the way down it and hit every rock on the way down. And it's just been one thing after another thing. And the physical pain, the exhaustion, the waiting on diagnosis. I don't know if you've been there, but it's, it can put your mind in a weird place of like, why? We just, we're meaning-making creatures, right? And so we're like, why is, why is this happening? What is the lesson here? What am I supposed to learn from this? And maybe you can relate, maybe it's your health, but maybe it's your family, maybe it's your marriage, your relationship with your kids. I think we all go through this, like, why are these things happening? And, and what am I supposed to take away from this? And when God's just the almighty, powerful ruler and king, it's so easy in those moments to think he's mad, he's punishing me, he's forgotten about me. I just want to say, if you're in that place, Christian, hear this. None of that's true. He's your father. And he's the best father. And like a great father, he doesn't shield us from trial, suffering, and hardships. You know, like that's the temptation I face as a dad. I want to bubble wrap my kids and put them in a padded room and just let them live there for the next 10 years. The problem is, eventually I'm going to have to take the bubble wrap off and let them out into the world. And that's hard. One of the challenges of parenting for me is, no, let, let them experience how life can be beautiful and ugly and how people can be wonderful and horrible. Let them experience it. Why? Because I want them to succeed. I want them to be people who can navigate this world and actually bring light and beauty into it. And in the same way, our Father in heaven he doesn't withhold trials from us. Hebrews says sometimes he even disciplines us, like he sends them. But he doesn't discipline, and it's never punitive or cruel. It's always formative and refining. He disciplines those he loves. And so if you're in a really hard spot, Christian, I just want you to know God has not abandoned you, and he's existed from eternity as a father. He hasn't all of a sudden changed who he is because of you, because of some sin in your life, because of some failing. He is father all the way down. I read a book a few years ago. I really love the title of the book. The title said, we become like what we worship. And I really think that's true. And that's what we're getting to in this morning's sermon, in this text, this whole series if we view God as stingy, how are we going to live? Probably as stingy people, right? If we view God as cold and distant, we're probably not going to end up being warm, loving people. If we view God as rigid and harsh and stern, we're going to be rigid, harsh, stern. If we view God as being angry most of the time, We're probably going to be angry people, and we see that a lot in the church. But when we see God as a loving Father, what would that do to us? How would that shape us and change us? How would your life be different if you saw that God is more generous, more kind, 
more compassionate and more merciful than you ever considered. That he's better than you ever imagined. And that his goodness is greater than you ever thought. Because it is. And that's one of the reasons when we gather, we come to the table. Because we can forget. And because life circumstances, it's easy to say, don't let your life be determined by your circumstances. But sometimes that's a really hard thing to actually do because our life is filled with circumstances. And we need reminders. We need stakes in the ground to remind us that, yeah, life can be hard and we can be going through all sorts of things, but there are eternal truths and promises God has given us to keep our eyes pointed in the right direction, to keep ourselves grounded in the truth. And so one of those things is the Lord's Supper. The night Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread right after he prayed to his father, saying, you love me before time began. And then he said, and this is my body that's going to be broken for you. And then he took the cup and he said, this is the cup, my blood, the new covenant, the new promise I'm making that's poured out for you. And he instructed us as his people to do this in remembrance of him because he knows we're forgetful. And what a gift it is for us every time we gather to be reminded God is good. He's our father. He provides for us. He cares for us and he's for us. So if you're here and you're a Christian, I encourage you to take part in this. I encourage you to pray. Maybe you haven't prayed in a long time. Maybe a real simple prayer is, God, I want to know you as my father, not just my Lord. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we ask that you not take part in this meal, but you take part in Jesus Christ who gave his life to make you a son or daughter of the king. And if you want to do that, it's really simple in some ways. I mean, it's really hard and it's a lifelong journey, but starting the journey just begins by saying, Lord, I don't want to live as the Lord of my own life. I want to know you as my father. I want to be a part of your family. You do that, and I trust his spirit will go to work in your life. Let me pray. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com slash east.